Good morning. It is a good day. The psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Today is a beautiful day to worship. It's the best thing we could be doing to, today. And that's because if you had a good week this week, the hope of being here and looking up is it only gets so much better. If you had a good week, this is nothing compared to the hope and the promises that are ahead. If you had a rough week, if you had a bad week and it put you down, there's hope. There's hope beyond this day that there's better days to come. And there's hope beyond this life. There's so much better of a life to come. So it is a good, good day to be here. This morning we're also uh, rejoicing because we have a new brother in Christ. Brother Eric Sanchez was baptized on Thursday night. The Lord is still working. The Lord is still saving souls. And people are still soft to hear the gospel taught and, and to have the fruits uh, in their hearts of that. So we are rejoicing this morning. It is a wonderful day. And we're going to study uh, Hebrews chapter 11 together this morning. I am determined to get through the rest of this chapter. So uh, we are going to finish up, hopefully, verses right around verse 23. We left off with, uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we're going to be picking up with Joseph. And let me get the exact verse for us. In verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you want to turn with us there, we'll be in this section of the chapter. And I've kind of given us the theme for this section that every responsibility and every hope is still in front of you. Yes, if you are, if you are old, if you are young, no matter if you feel like you are feeble or, or, or weak or, or strong, everything is still in front of you. And we're going to see that by faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, as we've gone through this section of Hebrews 11, talking about their heroes of faith, remember we're, we're trying to see, or the, the writer's trying to help the Jews see how they are not separate from their forefathers that they looked up to. It's not like now that they are under this new Christian age that they can just leave behind all their examples of faith. No. It's not two separate things. It is a walk of faith that was different in the Old Testament, but now it has a, has a Savior, it has a Redeemer that they follow into the New. So he's connecting them, he's making the bridge for their faith. <clears throat> and as we've noticed, these people haven't been perfect that are referenced in Hebrews. But the only thing it talks about is the good things. Okay, is that because it's trying to make it seem like everyone who has ever served God faithfully is just a perfect person? Absolutely not. The, the Bible is full of Good things, and then a lot of bad things about even these people we've talked about so far, and the people we're going to talk about. But the point is, sometimes you need to focus on the good to see that it can be done, to see that faith can be had in our lives, and that these things that we're going to read about were real, and the things that we can do today are real. The things that we read about then were recognized by God, and just like today, we can have a faith that is recognized by God. And that these things that they did are repeatable today in our own walks of faith. So let's get in to verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So Joseph, eventually they were led into, uh, they went into Egypt. You know, it was for a time they went into Egypt for safety and security from the famines and the issues of the land. But pretty soon, that wasn't what they really needed anymore. They needed to go back to the land of promise, to the land of Canaan. And so Joseph, when he was dying, 
He was not able to get back to the land of promise. He didn't get to go back there himself, but he told them, God has a promised land waiting for you in Canaan, and he's going to get you back there. He made mention of that departure and gave instructions concerning his bones. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, uh, where this is talking about, it says, uh, Joseph is saying, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. And Joseph died being 110 years old. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So as we consider Joseph, you know, we consider his walk of faith. It's strange to me, you know, he would have been embalmed like the Egyptians we read about. Maybe he was put in a sarcophagus, one of those nice caskets they made, because he was a high up ruler. Maybe he got one of those. And they carried that thing around for a long time. And you know, it's strange for me that the Bible points out his faith in his dying days. To look forward to see a time when God's promises will be fulfilled. Because I look at this and I think, Joseph is one of the most incredible Bible characters to me. If you look at his walk of faith, he was beaten down a lot. And he would make his way up through faith and then he'd get dropped down again. He'd make his way up and then he'd get, somebody would swipe his legs out from underneath him. He had some 40 years of faithfulness as he worked to recover from his brothers abandoning him and selling him into slavery. He rose up to the ranks in Egypt as a slave to second command in the world's greatest nation. Some scholars say that, the, that Egypt at this time would have been the greatest nation in the world. Would have been the nation that had the most power and resources. A lot of people came from everywhere during the famine, and so they got the fruits of that. They took over a lot of, of land and, and people. He overcame temptation by Pharaoh's wife. The man himself, Pharaoh, his wife came and tried to seduce him. But no, he, can't, he overcame that, and he literally ran out of the building. He overcame false accusations and unfairness. This process of being uh, approached by the advances of Pharaoh's wife, she ended up turning on him and falsely accusing him, and he got sent to prison. All when he was doing the right thing. And he, uh, he had a prophecy and decision making during the famine. So when, when he had been in prison for a while, he was called up to make, a pro to make an interpretation of the dreams that, that Pharaoh was having. And in this process, he proved his faithfulness, his understanding, and his connection to God. And in this, in this new relationship, he would provide advice that would lead uh, the Egyptians to their even greater power under his guidance. They, they taxed uh, the people around them, and so they became an even greater nation because of the wealth of the people who would send their taxes to them. We, that's the tax system we use today is what uh, Joseph advised during that time. He sustained his nation and his family. So during this famine, God, uh, God provided the prophecy to know that, hey, there's going to be a time of plenty. And then there's going to be a time where there's a famine in the land. And so he prepared his nation for that time. He said, store things up. Make a provision for what's going to happen. And it's, he was able to save his family that came in uh, to the land of Egypt later on when he reconnected with them. He overcame bitterness toward his family members that literally got rid of him. His brothers sold him into slavery, and when they came back and they were in need, he welcomed them with open arms. 
and he received them. This is what I think of when I think of Joseph. But that's not what the Bible pointed out. The Bible said, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, he made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. He had faith. He believed God's promises. He knew they were true. And he believed that God was going to get them back. That's a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith to know that something, though it seems unlikely, is going to come to pass in God's will. And you know what? His, his sarcophagus or whatever his coffin was that was above ground, some 400 years before it got back to the promised land. That means that for 400 years, he was a silent witness. So that when people would say, why in the world are we carrying around this dead guy? Shouldn't he be buried by now? We're carrying around this coffin with this dead man, and he's really well preserved, and it's kind of freaky. For 400 years, people would have been able to see, we still have hope. This man showed hope that we are going to get back to a promised land. We are going to get to a place that God has prepared for us. It was a symbol of his faith in God's promises. It didn't really matter where his bones were. It wasn't like, his bones are here, he's going to heaven. It wasn't like that. It was a symbol of his hope in the promises. Verse 23, next is Moses. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. So it almost reads like it's Moses' faith, but it's not. It's his parents. We hardly read anything about Moses' parents. But could have anything happened in Moses' life without them? He was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So during this time, in order to try to manage the growth of the people, the Israelite people, the king ordered that all the, the young boys be murdered and killed so that they would not you know, come up and take over the land. But his parents had faith and they hid him for three months and then they delivered him in faith into the river. That's what the name Moses means, to be drawn out of the water. By faith, they hid him. They took care of him. That was dangerous. That was risky. And then they sent him off in faith down the river where he would eventually be picked up by none other than the daughter of Pharaoh. Amazing faith. And sometimes we overlook the parents. And sometimes there's people in the church. Sometimes there's people in your life who are overlooked because of the background roles that they play and setting up some great things that happen because of their faithfulness, because of their constants and their willingness to take risks and to step out, even when it might not be the primary role, the upfront role. His parents are recognized for their faith and their role in his life. She could have seen a million things that would go wrong with this, his mom and his dad could have seen all the danger that could have come to them. But really, the point was, she saw no other option. She was going to preserve her, her, her line. She was going to preserve this child, Moses. How many of us see our work as Christians, see our faith and the need for our faith and continual effort and service and risk as something that there's no other option but to take that risk. As Christians, we have to understand that there's a world and there are people around us who are dying and lost and there is an example that we need to set that they might not see anywhere else. And if we don't take that risk, if we don't step out of our comfort zones and hold on to our faith and to grow in our faith, there is great risk with that. 
There is no other option but to serve God in this life. We can't see mediocrity in our faith as an option. Laziness in our faith as an option. Comfort zones as an option. She saw that there was only one option to save this child through faith. And we only have one option in our faith, and that's to serve God and step out in faith. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So when he got old enough, he made his own decision, and he would not be one of them. It says that he chose, rather, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So he made a decision. We all have a, ch a point in our lives where we become old enough, where we become aware enough, where it's on us to make a choice. What are we going to do? And he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, to take the risks that he needed to take. And in doing so, it says that he took on the reproaches of Christ. You're like, what in the world? Christ wasn't born for a long time after this. How does this have anything to do with Christ? They weren't there together. It's a, it's a pattern. It's an example of faith in doing this that he went beyond what he could have felt comfortable in. The passing pleasures, the comforts of sin. Because he saw that the reproach of Christ was better riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. That's the theme of faith. You overcome one desire. You overcome one Desire to stay the same, to never change, in exchange for something you believe is greater. And have the faith to see something greater beyond your present circumstance is the example of Moses and later on of Jesus who, who suffered for us. Because he looked to the reward. And by the way, when it said, it's going to tell us this again in chapter 12, but Jesus saw us as that reward. Do we see Jesus? as that reward that's greater, than, that's greater and worthy enough to be waited on and, and uh, worked and have faith in indefinitely. Verse 27, By faith he, speaking still of Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw God through the eyes of faith, and he endured that it enabled him to overcome this situation and, this, and the sin and the snares that were around him. What would happen if we could really see God in our lives? Because sometimes we say, if God could see us in this situation, if God was in this room with us, but the reality is he is. God is here. God does see us. Jesus is there. But do we see him? It says that Moses did see him, who was invisible. He took these big leaps of faith. Okay? He, he went out and he forsook Egypt. He had to pull off that really difficult band-aid of leaving maybe the, the richest area ever. And he was sitting there in this cushy seat in the palace. He took that big step, but he also followed the little steps. In verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So when uh, Moses was leading them out of the the land of Egypt, God sent those plagues to 
to beat down the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And part of that involved the Passover. God said, I'm going to, to kill the firstborn of every family who doesn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And so this is called, this is the institution of the Passover. Because if they put the blood of the, of the lamb on the doorpost, a symbol of Jesus' blood later, then the death angel that was going to kill all the firstborn, that death angel would pass over. And by faith, he kept that. That required an attention to detail, a focus on God's commands. Lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So he took the big leaps and he took the small steps of faith. Once they got out, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. Now they here is referencing the nation of Israel. So here is kind of shifting to God's people as a whole uh, that was leaving Egypt. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So as the, the children of Israel made it across, that took a lot of faith. You read that the heart of the Red Sea is something like, it's over 5,000 feet deep. So you had these 5,000 foot walls of water on either side. And they just had the faith to walk through there. We read a lot of bad things about these people, but this hall of faith is recognizing that the good things that they did. He's recognizing that they had moments of faith. These are repeatable. And you're like, well, that wasn't that big of a deal. They just walked through. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. That's the whole point of the New Testament. It's in faith. It's in faith. It's the way that they did what they did. They had their moments. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. So we're kind of getting snapshots of the Old Testament as we go through. And when the children of Israel went through to take on the, the promised land, they had the land of Jericho to take on. Jericho was a walled city. And if you're a nation of nomads, people walking around with tents and animals all over the place, taking on a nation that has giant walls is a pretty daunting task. Okay, So the way that they did that is God took matters into, into his own hands. He said, I want you to march around that city seven times. And on the seventh time, you're going to shout, you're going to yell, and the walls of that city are going to fall down. And that's exactly what happened. It's hard to picture that, but they had to have the faith to just keep walking around the city. Day after day for seven days. And once they did that for the seventh time, they yelled, they shouted. But it took an obedient, patient, and anticipating faith to follow through with, with God's command in this regard. Now, to make this all happen, though, they had to have this spy. They had to have these spies that went in and communicated with a member of the city whose name was Rahab. Now, Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a harlot. So as we read through this hall of faith, there's another person who is not a good individual overall. But you know what? She didn't have perfect faith. She didn't have complete faith. And she sure didn't have uh, everything altogether, but she had a commendable faith by God. She took her, her leap of faith. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. In Joshua chapter 2 verse 11, she says, He is the God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. She had that faith to get her started to recognize who she was dealing with, to step out in faith. She had a commendable faith. And as I think one of the themes of our meeting we just have, 
had is this concept of not extreme or awesome ability, but availability to do God's will. God proves throughout the Bible he doesn't need the person who has everything together. He doesn't need the person who has these great accolades and these great um, reputation. He needs people who are not especially able, but especially available to him in his, life, in his service and his plans. Are you available to God? Am I available to God? Whether I'm young, whether I'm old, am I available to God? Verse 32, we're moving through. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. So we have a list of people that we're not going to take too much to dive into because I think we've kind of slowed down the author's momentum enough as it is. We're going to cover one more, and that's Gideon. But let's remember, the theme is connecting them to, to people of faith before them. So he says, I don't have time to even talk about all these other people. The last one we're going to talk about is Gideon. Now, as a summary of Gideon's good things, he boldly destroyed idols, and he, mightily he was mightily used by God to defeat a much larger army of the Midianites. Okay, so the Bible's talking about the good things. This is the good things. But to help us uh, understand a little bit about Gideon more, because he's kind of a, um, we might not know a whole lot about him. Let's dive in for a minute in Judges chapter 6 through 8 about this man, Gideon. It says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so this is going to set up the rest of the, the plot that's going to happen. <clears throat> God's people did not follow uh, his commands. So the Lord delivered them into the land of Midian, for, into the hand of Midian, for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, caves and strongholds which are in the mountains not exactly a picture of awesome faith not exactly a picture of strength right so it was whenever israel had sown you know they had they got their crops together midianites would come up also amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them then they would camp and camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Okay, so these people were getting bullied. Now the funny thing is the Midianites were relatives of the Israelites. But because of all the divisions and the families that got bigger and separated, now the Midianites are just bullying the Israelites. And it made their life real rough. And it all started with them not following God's commands. Okay, so that's a kind of a... An important key uh, caveat. And they were hiding. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. It wiped out their economy. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. 
I got you out of this before. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. So they finally got to the promised land. And back in verse 1, they stopped following God's commands. And also I say to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose, in, in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Okay, so the big picture of this is these people are crying out to God like, you know, God, we're suffering and all this. So God sends a prophet to clarify why they're suffering. Okay, we don't always suffer because of some wrong. But oftentimes we suffer the result of sin and the result of things in our life that are causing problems. Okay, that is the case of these people. And the prophet came to show them, you guys aren't just suffering because I'm not a good God, because I'm not taking care of you. You're suffering because you have not obeyed my voice. You know, sometimes I think we need to look out for ourselves when we are complaining to God, when we are looking to God. You know, why am I going through this? Are we taking responsibility for our own actions that get us in the situations that we're worried about? That we're stressed about? So God wants to clarify. You know the reason why you're in this position, right? So he goes on to say, Now the angel of the Lord, a few, a few verses later, came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah. So uh, God's told this broad message to the people. Now he's going to a specific person in a specific place. So this place would belong to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, so we're getting a snapshot. We're zooming in on this greater microcosm of a systemic problem in Israel. They're beat down. They're low. They are being trampled by the Midianites. And here, as you zoom in, here's this guy, Gideon. He's, he's uh, threshing his wheat in a wine press. Now, a wine press looks something like this. It is a low place where you go to press the, the grapes to get the juice to collect in a low place. This man is in the epitome of a low spot. It's a symbol. It's, it's, it's not just where he's at physically. It's where he's at in their society, where he's at in his own life, it seems. So he's threshing wheat in here. And if you know, understand what, about how they would thresh wheat, you're like, why in the world is he doing that? Because when they, what they would normally do is to take care of the wheat, to make the wheat edible. They would take the, the harvest of wheat that they cut the stalks off of. Maybe they cleaned it up a little bit. But you still had around the seed pods, you had this chaff. It was like the dead, um, the dead shells around and things like that. So they take their big pile on top of a mountain where it was the most windy. You take it up on top of a mountain, you, you stick your, fitch, your uh, pitchfork in there, you throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow off the chaff, the extra, the dead stuff, the, the husks. And down the heavier stuff, the pods, the seeds that you could eat would fall. So they'd thresh the wheat, throw up in the air, and the good stuff would fall. The bad stuff would blow away. So God comes to this man who's threshing wheat in a hidden place at the bottom of a wine press. He's hidden. He's hiding. He's scared. And he is in a low place when he normally should not be down in a spot like that threshing the wheat. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. He's basically talking to a guy who's in the lowest of the low, in a place that's low, and who's going to say, I'm the lowest of the low of the low. And God says to him, 
You mighty men of valor, God is with you. Do you realize that this is a message that God sees the best in you when you and others around you do not see the best in you? Do not see the potential in you. Do not see the ability to serve God and to fulfill his plans and to be doing great works for him. God picks him up and talks to him in this low place and identifies the strength that he sees in him. God does not see you the way you see yourself and the way others see, others see you. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Okay, so after this, it doesn't look good still. Gideon basically says, I am the lowest man in the lowest tribe of Manasseh. So I'm the youngest. I'm just lower and lower and lower. And our country is being oppressed and we're lower and lower and lower. And he starts out by questioning God, why are we in this situation? Okay, God's already told them, you're in this situation because you have not obeyed the Lord. So he questions God. Then he, he puts out excuses. And then, you know, in these excuses that he has, maybe these were something that he was internally circulating. Maybe it's something that his society was circulating. Maybe it's something that his family was circulating or telling him. We can have lies. We can have self-imposed Lies that we tell ourselves, that other people tell us, that make us have a perspective that is negative, that is um, discouraging. And often, sometimes it can come from our own family members, as the Midianites were their family who was beating them down. He came up with excuses. And these were problems that he needed to work out. And so he starts by responding to God by, okay, I'm going to ask you for a sign. So when I wake up, I'm going to put this wool on the ground, and I want there to be dew all around it, and, but the wool is dry. So then I'll know that you're really with me. Okay, God does that. Then he says, okay, now I want the opposite to happen. I want the wool to be wet, but the ground around it to be dry when I wake up in the morning. God does it again. He, he's asking for signs to prove that God is really with him when God just, God told him, I'm with you. But his faith is weak enough to where he doesn't just accept it and follow in service to God. Okay, so he eventually takes God at his word. He goes and he, he is told to take down an idol in his father's house, and he does. He goes and he tears down an idol, and then the saga continues. That's the beginning of Gideon's good things. He takes down the idol. Then in, in uh, verse 19 of chapter 7, God calls him to go up against and to to deliver them from the Midianites. They're going to go after them now. They're going to fight back. And remember, in, in Old Testament studies, biblical warfare was because this was a theocratic nation, meaning they were governed by a religious organization. It was their government, it was their religion, it was all together. Today, we are a, king, a spiritual kingdom. We don't fight people. We don't attack people physically. Okay, So keep that in mind. Verse 19, So Gideon and the hundred men... Okay, so I need to explain how they got here. This is the situation where they're going up against the Midianites. God said, uh, get your people together. He gets 30,000 together. Okay, so Gideon's got this army. They're ready to go. God basically says, that's too many people. Because God's trying to prove that it's his work that's going to deliver them and not just the strength of their army. So he says, anyone who's afraid, tell them to go home. So 10,000 people leave and go home uh, from the army, the original army. Then he says... Uh, you're going to go up to the water, and whoever kneels down and drinks out of the water uh, by just sucking straight out of the water, you're going to use them. 
The people who would kneel down and get a handful of water and drink it, you're going to send those people home. Okay, so God is just trying to trim down this army until they have 300 people to fight the Midianites. And it says that those people were like locusts. They were just everywhere. It was a massive army that they were going to fight with 300 people. They had 300 men. Why? Because God wants to show them that by faith they're going to win this battle. By faith and not their own victories of might, they're going to overcome these people. So Gideon and the hundred men who are with him came to outpost of the camp at the, at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. So what's happening, the, the Midianite army is in this kind of basin. Gideon takes, looks like 100 men here, 100 men there, 100 men here. And they just yell, blow trumpets, smash their pitchers. And the, Midian, the Midianite army loses it. They lose their minds. They, they ran and cried out and fled in the night. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel Melah by Tabith. So they started getting confused. God sent a confusion among them to where God's people didn't have to do anything. They all started turning and killing each other. Then they pursued them as they started to flee. The point of this, God is the victor. He uses people who are available to him. People who will stand up and do what he says. And follow him in faith. Because they won this battle. They won this fight. And it wasn't even them doing it. The Lord did it. The power is with the Lord. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. How, how fitting this is to go full circle. That they, God found Gideon in this low place in a wine press. And he helps them defeat the Midianites at a wine press when all is done and all is taken care of. God brought it full circle. Back in Hebrews chapter 11. So we know who Gideon is. We know what he did. And what more shall I say for time would fail me to talk about all these people who subdued kingdoms, obtained promises, who out of weakness were made strong. That's Gideon who became valiant in battle, who turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Gideon. Goes on to say, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, not accepting to be freed from the problems that they were dealing with, because faith required them to stand in, to hold on, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. If you read about some of the things early Christians went through, it's awful. It's terrible. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. 
God having provided something better for us. That they should not be made perfect apart from us. This is finishing up the chapter. You know, I would say, you know, how did they not receive the promise? So many of them made it to the promised land. We learned early in Hebrews that they looked for a better that is a heavenly country. They weren't there yet. They had not achieved it. That's something that is being prepared is for us. It's for all of us to go together. It may have seemed to these Jews that the writer is talking to like the glory days were behind them. Like God's great works and God's great faith that they understood were comfortable with and had believed in. That's behind them. But no, what he's trying to tell them is that these days, like all the others in the history of God's people, require faith to fight a spiritual battle. They didn't look at their walk of faith like it was worth their time almost. It's like, we need to go back. You know, this isn't what we thought. But just like Gideon needed faith to step out, they needed faith to step out and hold and grow in their Christianity. And the same is true today. The glory days are not behind us. The best days of your faith, of the faith of the church, are not behind us. It's going to take faith to fight this spiritual battle. The challenges of this generation may be different than the last. America might not be a storehouse of biblical knowledge. It might not look that good. But we cannot dwell on only the problems of our generation, but seek to provide the solution that Christ offers to this generation, to the world that we live in, to our church and the people who are here. And it's going to, like the Hebrews, it's going to require faith on our behalf. It's going to require faith on behalf of the people who, are, who we're going to reach with the gospel. It's going to take faith just like these Hebrews needed to step out and to follow him. And it helped me understand how I see this incorrectly when I thought about this question. Does it feel like we can just never attain to biblical achievements of faithfulness or of faith? I have a subconscious bias that these people, people raised from the dead. People walk through an ocean. People walk through on dry land on a sea. Moses led a children out of bondage. And you're telling me I can do something that is repeatable, commendable by God? Just because God has chosen to work differently in this dispensation of time, where Christ has come, we don't have miracles today. No, God, has, God provides, I believe, for us, but he doesn't heal people like that from, and raise them from the dead. So just because God has chosen a different way to work through us, do we really think that it's any less in this generation, in your life, that God can't do great works of faith through you and your situation if you're young? Gideon had excuses. Do you feel like you're too young? Do you feel like you're too old? Do you feel like you're too mediocre, too in between? Do you feel like you're in a world that's not just not fit for it anymore? The point of this section of Hebrews is to show them that all of this is still in front of them in Christ. In Christ, we can have a walk of faith that is mirroring the faith of people who have gone before us, who have done incredible works. God's just choosing to do it in a different way. Don't look down. Don't despise the challenges that are in front of you. Like, it's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's hard. It's not going to be fruitful. God has always worked through his people. And shame on me when I think that my work of faith is any less 
than Moses leading the children out of Israel. Shame on me when I don't see my work as valuable as raising people from the dead because that's what saving souls is, isn't it? Bringing people from death to life through the power of Christ. Don't look down on what's in front of you or what's around you because the Hebrews had the same issue and they needed faith to overcome for themselves and for the people that they would bring to Christ. All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, they did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made apart, be made perfect apart from us. They did not run the last lap of faith. They did not even require the reward of their faith. We are still in this today. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which with, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This, heavenly, this calling is a heavenly calling from God, but a heavenly calling never comes without our response to it. These acts of faith, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, you could say in one sense that they were great, but in another sense they've been somewhat simple in day-to-day -day action. Abel offered his sacrifice. People made sacrifices for years, but it said by faith he did it. Enoch, it says he pleased God. Noah built a boat. He worked a blue-collar job for a long time trying to keep his small family safe. It was, in a, it was a pretty extravagant thing when we read about it, but that's what he did every day. He worked a blue-collar job with faith for a long time trying to keep his little family safe. Abraham set out on a nomadic lifestyle. A lot of people were nomads at the time. But he walked in faith, and he did all these things in faith. Sarah, yes, she was old, but she had a baby. It's not necessarily an uncommon thing. God can take our normal works and make them fruitful for his kingdom. Verse Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it wholeheartedly. This is, uh, I think this is the NIV. Work at it wholeheartedly as though you are doing it for the Lord and not merely for people. Don't let the value of your work diminish. It's hard to do. It's hard to, to keep your... Your mindset on the Lord's service when people around you might not necessarily make you feel like it's worth your time. It's like you're serving the Lord, whether it's at your job, whether it's in the church, whatever it is. I can't stop. I have to give a couple verses at the beginning of Hebrews 12 and then we'll be finished. Because this is this flow of thought. Therefore, because of all this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him is the salvation of our souls. God created us to be in his world. And we decided to not be a part of his kingdom. We decided to rebel in sin. But Jesus knew that. The joy of God, the joy of our Savior would be in saving us. And for that joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Now that word despised, it doesn't mean necessarily He hated it. 
It's like in, in Timothy when he says, don't let people despise your youth. It means don't let people look down on it. Don't let people look at it like it's not worth anything. He says, Jesus despised the shame, meaning he looked at it like it wasn't anything. He went through it. It was difficult. But Jesus looked at it like it was nothing compared to the joy of our salvation that was set before him. He despised that shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. We have a walk of faith. We're not being, we're not being sawn in two. We got this. Striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Okay, I can't keep on. We're going to close there. Let's look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, in light of all the examples of faith. This is still in front of us. This can still be done today. We can still serve God faithfully with what God has put in front of us to do today. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.